If you brought a Bible, we're going to be all over the place, but we'll start in Romans 5. So grab one from the chair in front of you or pull out your app or your Bible. Um, and we'll just jump in together. Um, I have roughly right around an hour of passages to, to share with you. I've got a lot bottled up, so hope you brought a pillow and a blankie. Um, but about an hour, um, and then I would love to us to think out loud together, some Q&A, and then spend a little bit of time. Hopefully, we'll have some time to gather in some groups and pray. So that's kind of where we're headed. Um, how do we be people of peace in, in an age of anxiety? That's what I'd love for us to consider tonight. And just to kind of set the stage, Here's some statistics uh, for you that might help us understand the days we're living in. Um, on March 13th, 36 people were killed when a car full of explosives blew up a public square in Turkey. You may remember that later that same day, 19 more people were killed as they sat on the beach on the Ivory Coast. Uh, just a few days later, two bombs exploded, one in an airport, the other in a subway station, killing 32 in Brussels, and that just unearthed scare, fear, and terror in Brussels and really in broader Europe. On March 25th, a man wearing a suicide vest blew himself up at a soccer game in Iraq, killing 36 people. Two days later, so this is Easter morning, group of people gathered in a park for a worship service, and someone in that children's park in Pakistan blew himself up, killing 76 people. On November 13th, gunmen, suicide bombers hit concert hall, restaurants, bars, a stadium, killing almost at the same time 130 people in Paris. Three weeks ago, France was attacked on July 14th in Nice, where a large truck plowed through a holiday crowd, literally mowing down 86 people. And on Monday, a suicide bomber blew himself up at a hospital in Pakistan, killing 74 people, mostly lawyers that were there to protest a, another killing that had happened. But all that's over there, right? It's the other side of the world. No, it's actually a lot's happening here, too. On December 2nd, last year, two jihadists went to a Christmas party and massacred 14 people in the state next to us, over in San Bernardino. Multiple African Americans were shot this year in what certainly appear to be racially related, profilistic kinds of killings. It's crazy to me that in 2016, we're dealing with racial prejudice in the United States of America. This is not 1950. This is 2016. Two months ago, a gunman entered a nightclub with an assault rifle and a pistol in Orlando and mercilessly killed 49 people. It was the worst massacre in U.S. history by a single person. On July 7th, a Dallas sniper attacked police officers at a peaceful rally killing five and a few days later, three more officers died in Baton Rouge in what was clearly a copycat attack. But more than all the numbers, let's remember that these tragedies have faces. These are 
These are not unnamed statistics. These are real people born through a real mother into a real world with real names, friends, family. Mass shootings take the lives of children and husbands, wives, friends, neighbors, sons, daughters, fellow human beings, regardless of their ideology, made in God's image, killed by fellow people, also made in God's image. It's been a sobering year, hasn't it? And in particular, there was, a su- there was a week this summer where it seemed like every single day there was another rampage somewhere being broadcast before us. It's exceptionally clear today that no safe haven exists. It doesn't matter what you believe, how much money you have, how educated you are, what your background is, what kind of country you live in. There is no place on the planet free from the potential of a seemingly random, chaotic, vicious, deadly attack. That's really sobering. So I've thought a lot about in the last eight weeks, as Christians who care about God's world, how do we both engage the world lovingly and well and not go crazy ourselves? How do we think about these things in a way that, that honors God? What are we to do with the pace and scope of all of this tragedy? In the span of just two weeks in March, 247 men, women, and children were killed in six countries by named acts of terrorism. So not one random person off his rocker, but stated people saying, I'm doing this as I'm giving allegiance to some group. Uh, Even just a year ago, if we pull it very close to home, uh, even just a year ago, it would have been unthinkable that at this point in U.S. history, we would have two presidential candidates that the vast majority of people would say, neither one have the character worthy of the highest office in the country. So we're living in unprecedented times, aren't we? And I'm certainly feeling that, and I imagine that you are uh, as well. It's a daunting time to be alive. Um, Jill and I have a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they're growing up in an increasingly harsh, polarized, uncertain world. So everywhere we turn, there seems to be legitimate reasons to lack peace and to possess fear. Um, There were perhaps times in U.S. history that people that were walking around daily thinking there might be some crazy attack today were hypersensitive, but we're past that point. We're, We're into uncharted territory. The world is, in fact, increasingly unstable. And um, for the first time in the history of the world, all of these events are now pushed to our phones with unfettered, untempered, unrestrained images, videos, and text. So how do we think about these things as gospel-believing, God-loving, 
normal, regular, everyday people. That's what I'd love for us to consider tonight. How do we be people of peace in an age of anxiety? So, are you with me? That's the setting. So in our remaining time, I'd love to help us consider how the scriptures would guide us to think about what we're seeing around us. In particular, how do we handle it internally? How do we process these things? And how do we not cower and hide in fear, but be, be agents as a church of reconciliation and peace and hope when clearly there's little reason to be that in the world? Uh, the scriptures would tell us that it's possible, even in an exceedingly anxious age, to be people of peace. That regardless of what's going on externally around us, whether that's the other side of the world or right here in our own city, that there is something God can do inside a human being to create, to recreate um, a people of peace, a people that live in peace irrespective of circumstance. And uh, I don't say that flippantly or that that's easy to somehow ascertain. It's got to be given to us from above. Peace is possible. So if um, I want to give you lots of stuff to think about in the next 50 minutes or so, but if you only take one thing and retain it and it sticks with you and it makes a difference, I, I would hope it would be this, that it is possible to be people of peace today. And it's not only possible, it's promised to all who have accepted Christ and do the work of seeking to abide in that peace. Because God has given himself so that people can be reconciled to him. So in Romans 5, um, we'll see that together. And I wonder if somebody would... Read for us how the gospel assures us that we have peace with God. So who would read, be willing to stand up and read loud, uh, Romans 5, 1 and 2. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Who would do that for us? Awesome. Thank you. Would you say your name? Everybody's getting to know you. Hi, Linda Harris. Linda Harris. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Uh, Linda went through a membership interview tonight. We're excited she's connecting with the church. Thrilled about you joining us. Thank you for reading. Romans 5 says with no qualifications that God, through Christ, has given us peace with him. That is the best possible news we could ever have, isn't it? So if you are blessed to live 80 years, that's a long time. If you're blessed to live 80 years and you live 80 years in a place where there isn't external peace and you will spend eternity in a place with a God where there is internal and external peace, it certainly frames our perspective in a different light. But it's not just that we will have peace then, it's that we have peace now. And we have peace with who? We have peace with God. So 
all of you know this, but um, I haven't had the joy of saying this to you in a while, so just humor me. The gospel is what provides us peace with God. All of us were born into a state and then perpetuated that state by our own decisions of war, not peace with God. We were hostile towards him. We rejected him. We pursued our own way. We did what we wanted to do. We said, no, God, I don't want you on the throne. I'll be on the throne. That's called sin. And all of that is hostility towards our maker. But our maker is so kind and benevolent that he chose us, that he pursued us, that he gave his life for us to buy our peace, to rescue us out of sin into a right, reconciled, justified relationship with him. That is great news. If you're at home shouting about the Olympics, I wish you would shout about that. That is tremendous news, isn't it? We have, not we will have, not we could have, not we might have, not we had. We have peace with God. Today, tonight, because of Christ's work on the cross. That is the most important peace we can possibly have because that peace lasts forever. Are you with me? That's really great news. If you're here tonight and you haven't enjoyed that peace, you haven't thought about that peace today, I hope you'll just sit down on the inside with it. Regardless of how you failed him today, you have peace with God because it's based on Christ's life, not yours. It's a gift from God, not something you earn. It's a position to enjoy, not a condition that you attain. It's, it's a place God gives you in Christ forever. Oh, that's wonderful news. But that peace with God doesn't mean that the world will be a place of peace. And oddly enough, this exact passage tells us that. So, do you mind reading some more, Linda? Same passage, just start in verse 3 and read through 5 for us. We tend to want to separate peace with God and, and suffering. And if you have one, then you certainly can't have the other. But right here in the same paragraph, Paul says, it's not only possible, it is what will happen. You have Christian peace with God, and yet there is not yet full, complete peace with people and the world because all the world is not redeemed. And so we will be a people who suffer. And that suffering comes in all different kinds, doesn't it? Physical, emotional, spiritual, external, internal. We will be people who have suffering. 
peace with God does not mean an absence of suffering and hardship in a world wrought with sin. Anyone that tells you otherwise is not reading the Bible correctly because very clearly Paul says these things go together. Peace with God and temporal suffering in the world are not at odds with each other. In fact, our peace with God will enable us to get through the suffering in the world, which will help produce even more daily understanding of the peace we have with God. Peace, the peace that God gives us will give us all we need to face anxious, dangerous, uncertain times with courage, with kindness, with strength, and with love. It's difficult to have all those things working together. And so in the rest of the time we have, I want to try and help us and mainly speak to myself and you can overhear. What do we do? How do we think? What actions should we pursue in order to try and live out that peace that God has given us? In other words, um, how is it that the peace of God can be daily uh, appropriated in everyday life? Maybe an, an analogy would help. Did anyone get a new car while I was gone? So the last eight weeks, anybody bought a new car? It's okay to admit it. It's not necessarily sinful. Not brand new. Not brand new. So slightly used. That's not slightly. <laughs> okay. What did you get, Stephen? A Ford Ranger truck. Okay. So let's pretend that this Ford Ranger truck is in spotless condition. All right? If you had given me 100 guesses, I would not have guessed you would buy a truck. But so Stephen's got a new truck. It's sitting at his apartment complex in his spot with his number, and he's really proud of it. Can you tell looking at him? <laughs> Stephen, every day, goes out, and he sits in that truck. And he breathes in that fresh 130,000-mile smell. <laughs> he pretends there's no french fries in the crevices. There's no ketchup on the ceiling. And he just enjoys that new truck. He's proud of it. And then he goes back in his house. And his gospel community members, his fellow church friends come over, his, his in-laws, and he wants to show them the new truck. And so everybody comes down one by one, and they sit in the truck with him. And he's just so proud of it. Look how nice and shiny and fresh and clean and amazing it is. But they all look at him kind of weird. Why? What? He's, he's not appropriating the new truck. So he's not putting the keys in, turning the engine on, and going somewhere. The truck's his. It's in his possession. His name's on it. He owns it. It's in his spot. It's not going anywhere. But he's not using it. He's kind of making an idiot of himself, actually. Uh, how many of us have done that with our Christianity? How many of us have done that with our peace with God? We've come to church. We've 
looked at it. We've sat around with other Christians and talked about it. But we haven't put the key of faith in the engine and turned it on. And we haven't employed that piece to go anywhere. So how is it that we use the peace that God's given us? The Bible gives like dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of strategies, of methods, of how we can use, how we can apply, how we can turn on the peace that God's already given us. And I want to give you just five of them. So um, the first couple of these are not easy to receive but I've tried to do them in the order of priority the scripture gives us. So, first, we need to be people who confess that, God, you're sovereign. God, you are sovereign. Um, You're likely familiar with the story of Job, but in case you didn't read it today, here's a few reminders. Job lived the other side of the world, ancient Near East. He loved God. He devoted his life to the things of God. He was what college students today might call a baller, meaning everything seemed to go well in his life. He had money. He had stuff. He had a family. He had friends. Life was great. But one day, catastrophe hit, and In an unimaginable amount of suffering, he faced crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis. His kids died, his servants died, his livestock died, his house got destroyed, and then he got sick. He got boils all over his body. And the book of Job tells us they were so horrible, he took rocks and tried to scratch them open to get relief. And then his loving bride came to him and told him what he ought to do. Job chapter 2, verse 9. It'll be on the screen. His wife said to him, after all of this wretched stuff that happened, real person, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I bet she was fun to have dinner with. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Men, I wouldn't suggest, if you have a wife or want a wife, that that's the way you speak to them. But here's the sentence. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In the thinking of modern Western Christians, in our minds, we tend to think, When I face crisis, the way to deal with that is to turn away from God. That's how I'll deal with the fact that there's these huge problems. Job's thinking was the exact opposite. That in some sense, everything in life passes through the hands of a good God. That doesn't mean he doesn't have questions. Read the rest of the book. Doesn't mean it wasn't painful. Read the rest of the book. But it does mean that he had a a confidence that God is in control, that God's sovereign, that nothing happens that God said, oh, that one caught me by surprise. 
God wants us to turn towards him in suffering, not away from him. Job understood that the only anchor to hold in the storms of tragedy is the truth that God's in control. Now again, I don't mean that to placate the questions and struggles that suffering and hardship and crisis reveal that are in us, but to say that that's where we need to end up is the confession, God, you are sovereign. So to put it in a context maybe of what we need to hear, friends, President Obama is not in control. He has never been. And whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton win, he or she will not be in control. ISIS is powerful. They have crazy reach, like genuinely shocking reach. But they're not in control. They don't run the world. The Communist Party in China, which is huge, is not in control. Kim Jong-un of North Korea, who continues to escalate things, is not in control. God is in control. God is in control. Some days it is hard to see how the God who articulates himself and reveals himself in the Bible could allow some things to happen that are occurring. But our limited perspective doesn't mean we see things or know things better than God does. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He rules. He reigns. I realize it's counterintuitive, but the greatest truth we need to affirm in a terrible, scary, increasingly hostile world is God's sovereign. And whether we individually feel like we're facing triumph or tragedy, peace or pain, sickness or health, God is sitting on his throne and he's working all things together for the good of making his people more like Christ. Over and over and over and over again, the biblical witness, when the people of God suffer, is I am in control. Now, why can we put stock in that when our circumstances don't seem to look like we should? Well, it's because the, the sovereign Lord gave himself as the slaughtered lamb. So whatever evil and hardship means, it doesn't mean God doesn't care or he's detached or he isn't willing to do whatever it takes to rescue his people because he's already done that. So whenever we have questions about how could a sovereign Lord allow that, we need to remember that that same sovereign Lord became the slaughtered lamb. So start every day by confessing before we ever pick up our phones and turn on the news. God, regardless of what happens today, you are sovereign. We trust you. We believe, help our unbelief. 
That is by far, in terms of the number of times and the, the points of emphasis, the single truth the Bible teaches the most about suffering and hardship. So I start there. Now it will get easier after that. Second, what can we do? How can we live peacefully in an age of anxiety? Two, number two, remember tragedy is normal for now. What do we think about when catastrophe or terror strike? Horrific, heinous evil happens every day and it's broadcast for our consumption. Uh, Just to be really candid with you, the the, the event that's bothered me the most this year was the truck driver in Nice. Someone that walks into a crowded mall with a vest on and blows himself up doesn't have any idea the, the carnage he causes. He doesn't see it, right? He's blown into a million pieces. But, but a, a man who would take a truck and drive down a sidewalk as families are celebrating a national holiday, and hear the clank, 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 clank of bodies, and feel mowing them over, and make it hundreds of yards, um, kept me up that night. That, that's evil unmatched by these other events. And for, for any human being, I think it has to cause questions. Like, God, were you there? Do you know? Do you care? Is what the Bible says true? Are you impotent in the face of evil? How can you be good and allow a coward in a truck to people who had no defense. How can you let that happen? Christ, do you care about our eternity, but nothing about this 80 years? If it doesn't conjure up some of those questions for you, that's great. But for a lot of us, it does. I think those kinds of questions are natural. They're understandable but they're not benign. They come from places of our hearts where there's still unbelief. They're not neutral. They need to be brought before and submitted to God and processed through His Word. When someone has the worst day of their lives, what should we do? How should we think about it? Well, I know most of you very well, and so you would agree with this. When a friend has a miscarriage, what do we do? We don't go and pontificate on the good God's going to do through that hardship. You don't go to the hospital while the DNC is being performed and counsel the husband to be strong because God's going to use this for good. That's stupid. What do you do? You weep. You weep with those who weep. You hug. You cry. You give the ministry of your presence. You don't talk. You're just there. You feel it. 
we see that personified the best in Jesus Christ. When one of his friends died, and he knew, I'm going to bring him back. That guy's going to come out, and he's going to stink, but he's coming back from the dead. What did Jesus do? He wept. He was broken. He was humanity in its fullest. So when any of us struggle, when we face hardship, we don't first theologize to each other. We enter in the pain. And that might last a day, it may last a week, it may last a month. But we're present in the difficulty with the person. And how do we think about that as we begin to move from those questions to a place of confidence in God? Well, Jesus tells us. So I'd love it if you'd turn with me to Luke 13. It's a great passage where Jesus explicitly answers the question, what do you do when terror, hardship, crisis, suffering, difficulty strikes? Jesus tells us very explicitly. Um, Roger, do you mind reading just verse 1? Luke 13, verse 1. Great. Stop there. Thanks. So here's what's happening just really quickly. Pilate is the dude in charge of Jerusalem, and yet it's full of Jewish people. And apparently one day, this isn't recorded in the Bible anywhere else, but apparently one day some Jews are in the temple offering their sacrifices because they've sinned, and some Roman soldiers go in, and they kill them, and then they mingle Mix their blood, the animal blood and the people blood, as a way of mocking God. So imagine if uh, it's a Sunday morning, we're here together, and Tad comes up, he holds up the bread and the cup, he talks about Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, some Yahoo comes in, slits a bunch of throats, pours their blood into that blood as a way of mocking the sacrifice. So that's what these guys did. So not just, just evil, but horrific, like profane, mocking God, idolatry. Awful. So they're saying to Jesus, so this happened. What do you think about that? Jesus' response is, do you think those people who died were worse off than the others. That seems like a really odd question, doesn't it? Like, not the Jesus I've heard about. It's not the touchy-feely, warm, fuzzy, cuddle, boyfriend Jesus. That's like, what are you talking about? He's saying, in our context, did those people who were sitting at the gate in the airport in Turkey and they got blown to pieces... The same day, there's people sitting at an airport in Phoenix. They didn't get blown up. So were the ones in Turkey more evil, and that was an act of judgment upon them, than the ones sitting here in Phoenix? Or another way to say that, 
Did the police officers in Dallas get gunned down because they were worse sinners that day than the people who served as police officers in Tempe? Were they greater sinners and that's why they died in the slaughter? That's what they're asking Jesus. Now what's behind that is in this day, so in this day when this was written, it was very common, known, everyone believed. If you can't get pregnant, if you die young, if you lose a child, if there's a natural disaster and your house gets burned up, it's because you sinned. God is judging you. So not only did you deal with the crisis, but you dealt with the collective sense of guilt that was projected on you. So Jesus is poking in that question. So all of us in the room that have kids, they've gone back to school, they're learning their math again. The math would be tragedy equals bad person, sinner. Lack of tragedy equals good person, righteous. But Jesus didn't believe that. Very clearly did not believe that. Here's what he says in verse 3. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or then he brings up another event. So he's going to go from an act of evil by people to a random, bizarre, quote-unquote, natural disaster. Or did those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the other who's lived in Jerusalem? No, and I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Probably referring to a tower connected to the wall around the city of Jerusalem that fell over. A bunch of people hanging out in the shade. The rocks all crushed them to death. So a natural act of evil, I mean, a, an act of evil from a sinner could have been prevented and rocks falling on people. Jesus says, in either case, Unless you repent, you're going to perish too. That's Jesus meaning wild, isn't it? What in the world is he getting at? Whether a sinful action like a suicide bomber or a gunman or a cruel boss, an abusive parent, or a natural disaster like a flood, tragedy moves us or ought to move us to ponder the state of our own soul before God. Our tendency is to think, how could a good God allow that? But what Jesus is getting at is our tendency ought to be, why wasn't it me? Why wasn't it me sitting in the airport in Turkey or walking on the streets of Nice? Why wasn't it me at that Christmas party in San Bernardino? Why wasn't it me in the hospital in Pakistan, who got blown to pieces on Monday. Jesus turns the question on its head. One theologian put it like this, we can deal with catastrophes in this world only by understanding that behind them stands the eternal purpose of God and that by realizing that he's delivered us from the ultimate catastrophe the collapse of a tower of his final judgment on our heads. Before every human being stands the likelihood, the certainty, 
of an eternal tragic ending. When this life is over, life isn't over. You enter into a real place called hell or a real place called heaven, and they go forever. So Jesus is using the tragedy in the natural world to say, unless you come to me and trust me, give yourself to me, my death for your death, you're going to perish and forever be in catastrophe. Jesus uses questions about human evil and natural disaster to say, don't be amazed that something bad hasn't happened to you yet. It's going to, unless you come to me. So friends, let tragedy move us to grieve with everyone who enters hardship. And we all will in some way, shape, or form. But let us also be moved to ponder the state of our own condition before God. Are we right with Jesus Christ? Jesus said, in the world we will have trouble. But, anybody know the rest? I've overcome the world. That's what he's getting at. Is don't be amazed when tragedy happens. Be amazed that you've been spared. And let that prompt you to rejoice in the salvation you've had or to come to salvation if you haven't yet and to pray for those who haven't. All right. It's easier from this point. Let's look at Matthew 6, 25. Very famous passage through which we'll see that a third way to think about being people at peace in an age of anxiety is to live for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of God. Of self. So if we could take a longer section, who would read 25 to 34 of chapter 6? Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Tim, you mind doing that? Sure. Great, brother. Thanks, Tim. Classic text on anxiety. And it's kind of funny. If you're an anxious person, to be told, don't be anxious. 
is another reason to be anxious, isn't it? <clears throat> um, I'm convinced that in our actual day-to-day -day life, the deep-seated reasons that we experience fear, worry, and anxiety isn't chiefly the dangers that are around us, but it's the idolatry within us. That's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. He says very clearly that he's a loving, gracious father. And he promises that as we live for him, he will take care of our most basic needs. So I think I'd just ask you, have you found him to be a liar? In all your fret and worry and up late at night, have you found him to be a liar? All of you are clothed, and I'm thankful for that. I think it's safe to say all of us have eaten today. So our basic necessities, clothing, food. God has provided those, has he not? Many times we're actually anxious because we trust ourselves to provide for ourselves. Perhaps without even recognizing that that's what we're doing. We bow down to work and looks and money and kids. We put ourselves on the throne. And eventually something happens that we find the reality we can't really handle ourselves. Only God can do that. But what if we learned together as brothers and sisters in Christ to live that way every day? Wouldn't that be great? God loves his own. He doesn't promise long lives free of hardship. But he clearly, explicitly, without question says, Christian, if you will seek first the kingdom of God, or to say that a different way, if you will pursue living a life of being transformed by God, or to say it even another way, love God, love people. If you will give yourself through Christ, the power of the Spirit living within you, to those things, God will take care of your most basic needs. So Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough to worry about. Give yourself to kingdom priorities. Don't live for the little kingdom of self. Live for the great big kingdom of God. A kingdom that's already inaugurated. That we already have peace with God. And we can share that peace with others. And as we learn how to live in that rhythm, even if circumstances around us don't change, we begin to change inside. Less anxious, less fearful, less worried. More able to sit down on the inside. Now, tangibly, what can you do in order to do that? That's the fourth thing I'd love to share with you. And we'll look at that from Philippians 4. Another classic 
classic text on peace and anxiety. So turn there. There's only two more. Don't be anxious. You can do it. Philippians 4. I'll just spend a moment here. On Sunday, we're going to start going through Philippians. We'll spend, Lord willing, from this Sunday to the first Sunday in December, just methodically working our way through this marvelous book. So just a moment on this. But how do you be a person that's living for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self? Well, we become people of prayer, true thinking, and right doing. Prayer, true thinking, and right doing. Uh, Brian, you mind reading for us, brother? Read uh, 4 to 9. Yes. Philippians 4, 4 through 9. You'll probably notice in your Bible that there's likely two paragraphs there. They both end with a promise of peace. And what precedes those sections are statements about how we're to put the key of faith into the engine of peace and turn it on. That's all it's doing. It's saying, you've been given peace with God. Now here's how to appropriate that peace. Here's how to live in that peace. Here's how you can experience the eternal peace you have with God today in the middle of crisis and hardship and trial and suffering and difficulty. And friend, um, some of us in the room are genetically predisposed to anxiety. That is a thing. Some of us need medication to help us on this path. That's, that should be no more stigmatized than the diabetic who needs insulin. It's, it's a chemical bodily issue. And yet, regardless of our state and our stature, we have the responsibility to seek in God's strength to follow his commandments, right? So what does he tell us to do? He tells us to be people of prayer. And there's a great contrast there. Don't be anxious about what? Anything. But instead, pray about everything. So every time there's the temptation or I recognize, I'm anxious and now I'm anxious because I'm anxious. What do I do? I go again to God in prayer. Am I going to surprise him with anything I say or pray or admit I'm feeling? Of course not. But the act of praying, of bringing requests to God, the passage tells us, what does God do? It, it, it's hard to tell this in the English translation, 
But what he does is he says, this, the word guard in verse 7 is a really specific word. It was used of a soldier guarding something, watching over, protecting. So he's saying, Christian, as you bring everything you're tempted to be anxious about to God, everything you're praying about, God's going to set a soldier of peace over your heart. And he's going to guard it, and he's going to protect it. You may feel like all of life is coming apart, and you're hanging on just by a little tiny thread. But the God of peace is going to grant you the ability to get through it. He's going to put a soldier of peace over you. Isn't that a cool picture? So, we're to not be anxious, but we're to pray. And as we pray, then we're to move into right thinking. So, he gives a whole long list. What am I supposed to think about instead of this big thing that's consuming my life? Well, anything good, anything true, anything honorable, anything of God that I can choose instead to put my mind on. And as we do that, then we move into doing. So moving from, I'm recognizing I'm anxious, I'm not supposed to be anxious about anything, so I'm moving to praying about everything, which moves us to praying and thinking right, godly, true, honorable, scriptural things, which means now we're, I'm going to act on them. I'm going to do good instead of fretting inside. That's the picture he gives us. And let me suggest two really concrete, specific things to try and help with that. Uh, limit your use of media. From now until November, guess what's going to be on? Every day. There will be absolutely nothing positive. Campaigns are not about a candidate presenting their best foot forward. They're about maligning the other person. And because of the two that we have, it is going to be more hostile, more antagonistic, more nasty than any in modern history. That is what you're going to hear if you turn on your news app, if you turn on, pull up the webpage, if you turn on the news on the TV. That is what will be there. So I don't mean detach from the world, become a monk, join a monastery, quit your job, leave your spouse if you have one, forget your kids if you have some, give up the hope of those things, and go live in the desert. That is not what I mean. But are things really going to come unglued in your life if the first thing you do when you get up isn't start listening to news or watching news? What would happen if you said, um, twice a week, for 15 minutes, I'm going to get on Facebook? The rest of the time, I'm not going to turn it on. 
Facebook is a pretend world. It's a pretend world where people s put their very best life forward and people say hostile things to each other you never would say in person. You really know when you're in trouble when you start liking your own comments. So somebody gets a like. Instead, use that time for prayer, right thinking, and right doing. I think very quickly, like in the span of a few days, you'll find a difference in your soul. And number two, um, if you haven't already, uh, take Disciple Makers or one of the other classes that will be happening starting next Wednesday night. All of them, Disciple Makers 1, Disciple Makers 3, Regroup, Financial Peace, all will be giving you positive, biblical, helpful information in a relational setting with homework to do that isn't overwhelming and will give you true, right, honorable things to not only think about, but to actually do. That's exactly what they're designed for. So I hope literally 100% of people that are here tonight will be back next Wednesday night, not because we count how many of you are here and we'll compare it to last year. We don't even do that. But because it will be good for you and you'll be better equipped to help other people. Finally, a last suggestion, then we'll take some questions and pray together. Fight for what truly matters. A lot of things we argue about, get anxious about, twerked up over, drive fast over, yell at each other about, they don't actually matter. A lot of the things that do matter, we tend not to exert much effort behind. Um, I certainly face those temptations just like you and fall prey to them. Paul says something in an elaborate argument that we can't really go into tonight, but just to jump into the core of what he says, and it, I think it'll be on the screen behind me, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So, I do not run aimlessly, and I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Timely passage, isn't it? So, as you know, the Olympics started last weekend in Brazil. They're fun, they're amazing, incredible. Over 200 nations, 10,000 plus athletes competing for their countries. Think of the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours that go into doing a 200 meter swimming race. Everything in life being about that. Every bite of food every moment of sleep, every mental thought has to be devoted to that in order to get there, doesn't it? 
Imagine a person who calls himself a runner and says that he has Olympic gold medal aspirations as an athlete. He wears the clothes, he goes to the meets, but he eats whatever he wants, skips all his workouts, and lazily jogs in the race. Does merely calling himself a runner make him one? To win if his entire life isn't built around the growth needed for that moment. That's foolish. Olympic victories don't come without sacrifice, pain, and sweat. Friend, progress in the Christian life is no different. We get into the kingdom by grace and grace alone. All of Christ, none of us. But we grow in the Christian life in part through running and sweating and discipline. We enter Christianity by grace alone, but those who have experienced grace will exert themselves for God's glory. They will run the race because they want to honor the king who died for them. Part of the root of anxiety within us is when we start wasting our lives on things that don't matter. And as those things that don't really matter begin to crumble, that, that naturally causes anxiety. Are you with me? Christians are to have different priorities, hopes, aspirations, and daily choices. Not to get in the kingdom, not to stay in the kingdom, but because that's what kingdom people do. So imagine if you turned on the TV tonight and you saw a 450-pound guy trying to run around the track. He's not going to finish the race. Friends, we're to make sacrifices for growth and holiness. So I spent the summer reading things about the daily habits necessary to continue to grow up personally as a Christian in the faith of Jesus Christ. Because I needed to be reminded, I got to put my tennis shoes on. I got to not eat garbage. I got to not sleep 16 hours a day. May we run this race well. Peace isn't passive. Stephen's truck isn't going to start if he doesn't put the key in and turn it on. You and I will not experience the peace in daily life that God's given us for eternity unless we do the work of applying the disciplines of the Christian life. We've got to work hard to rest in Christ. If that struck a nerve for you and you want to learn more about that, um, then in Philippians, we're going to talk a lot about how to daily walk with Christ. And if this whole issue of suffering, hardship, crisis, tragedy is a really big one for you, some of you it won't be, but some of you it will be, I would really highly commend 
this book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Some of you have read it already. There's more of these at the bookstall. If there's someone here that wants to read it, you'll commit to it. Do you already have one you're doing? You promise? All right. Come on up. Um, on September 4th, a connection class will start on suffering that will try and frame this whole conversation in a much longer, more detailed, likely more helpful way. So you may consider coming to that if you need that for yourself. Or if you know of somebody else that's really struggling with fear, worry, anxiety, they're overrun with panic, they don't know how to process difficulty and suffering, would you come with them, even if you don't need it? Peace is possible in an age of anxiety. It's provided for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can be applied to us in everyday experience if we'll do this work of applying these things. What are a couple questions you have for suggestions, rebuttals, yes buts? We'll go do that for maybe five minutes and then we'll pray together for five minutes. Yes, ma'am. Dana. I guess something that shook me this summer was um, on like the death when <laughs> the story came up about the woman who had had her boyfriend shot uh, by a police officer in April and she had just lowered herself to this broken life and she's like, and then all this trauma is just coming through. And I, I, I struggled with so much with how do I teach my children? free speech, right. So how do parents help their kids process and live in this world that we now have? That's the question, right? Um, that's a great one. Uh, <laughs> two weeks ago, uh, I let Abby and Micah go from our house to our neighborhood has a, my wife is gasping, um, our neighborhood has a kind of collective that your, your HOA pays into, a clubhouse that has a, a gym and racquetball courts, basketball court in it. So for the very first time, um, I, I let them go there by themselves. And not 30 minutes later, get a phone call from Abby, and she calmly, like ain't no thing, says, so dad, there's an active shooter in the neighborhood 
and they won't let us go and they won't let you come to us. And Micah's freaking out. Um, Active shooter. She, she's 12. I didn't know what an active shooter even meant. So it's, it's here. Yeah. So uh, lots of parents in the room and people who love kids in the room. Any thoughts? How do we help children be in the world but not of the world when crisis is broadcast before them live? When a 12-year-old and 8-year-old can't leave the racquetball because there's a shooter roaming around the neighborhood. Which the next day when Micah wanted to go ride his bike, he, he said, I'll go ride my bike if there's not an active shooter in the neighborhood, Dad. <laughs> so, do you have any thoughts about that? How do we parent well? How do we parent towards wisdom? Relative safety? Lack of foolishness? But not anxiety. How do we do that? Anybody have any thoughts? Lisa. Well, is it the kind of thing, like, if you want to teach sex education to your kids, you don't want to give them too much information too soon because they can't handle it? I mean, or do you, I mean, do you wait until circumstances come up? You don't want them to be foolish. I, I don't have any suggestions. I'm past that point. But, you, I mean, we always erred on the side of caution as far as information and things that she was able to see and, and things that she was told until we thought she could handle it. So perhaps an issue to consider is age appropriateness and how that impacts that particular child. Okay? Roger? I, I look at it a different way that has nothing to do with the phone or the television or the radio. When there's tragedy or when there's suffering or when there's a struggle that is affecting our family, how to make that real and understandable to my kids on practically how we can handle those things, how we pray, You ram them, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, rather than, yeah, people screw up in life. Bad things happen. How we respond is what we let them know. So we, we approach it peace. There's a conflict that you've got to approach it peace. Instead of thinking, instead of expecting the world to act like Christmas, how do we act like Christmas in the peace? Katina?
in terms of the specificity of how you talk about that.
great, really practical, useful, helpful conversation. Um, I think the only couple of things I would add is be be proactive and thoughtful about what kind of media you choose to use and how much access you give a child. And an eight-year-old should not have uh, uncensored access to everything on YouTube, just for example. Um, so you, it's probably not the wisest thing in the world to have CNN on all the time with a six-year-old in the room. Yeah, sure. We may not all be dressing immodestly or, you know, drinking, smoking, and bar hopping or whatever, but it's those little things that seem harmless that we're going to be so different yeah. because we're not going to be using our technology and, and Facebook and media and doing those things that seem like, you know, benign, but they're really not. Right. And that's where we're going to be so different. Sure. So I, I don't mean get rid of all that stuff completely unless that's what you have to do in order to use it in moderation. And if that's what it takes, then do it. But if, if you just give more thought to how, how you're choosing to use that. And um, second, those of you in the room who are further along in this than those of us with little kids, please be helpful, be proactive, build friendships, mentor, disciple, pursue. Um, you're probably not gonna be told, no, I got this all covered, thanks, I don't need you. Um, three, every child is different, so if you have two, one of them will have a different capacity to process hardship than the other. They will not be the same. Know your child and help them in appropriate ways. Though one child might have nightmares over something, the other is very able to talk about. So know your child and be about the work of discipling them. And if you're in the habit, even if it's for five minutes, of reading the Bible daily with your child, guess what you're gonna find? Literally everything. <laughs> you just use the first book of the Bible. My uh, youngest brother came to visit and uh, we were reading through Genesis and got to the passage where the father gives his daughters to the um, uncouth and uh, so I didn't tell him that that's where it was and just gave him that passage to read to Abby. And uh, that prompted a lot of interesting questions from her, which is great. We're still talking about it several years later. But it's all in there. The Bible is uncandidly honest and transparent and real. If you're daily reading the Bible with your kid, even for a few minutes, eventually they're going to start asking what in the world? And then it's served up and you can have age-appropriate conversations. Um, but we don't need to overly shelter and um, we can be transparent about even the struggles that we have. We're over time, so let me pray. Father, thanks for your people here. Thanks. It's such a privilege to be back with brothers and sisters with family. God, statistically speaking, there's no more violence today than there was 100 years ago. 
and we certainly don't live in a nation in which you nail people to crosses and hang them up while they suffocate to death for everyone to watch. And yet we do live in a time in which incredibly horrid, violent, awful things are set before us, pushed to us. And then there's our own daily struggles to pay the bills, to wonder about the diagnosis, to send our kids off to school. Father, would you help us to live in the peace that you've provided? Not just for us, but that we might be light to people who have no peace with you. Help us to band together well and represent you through your strength for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks.